Hey Goblins, Brandon here. Uh, if you enjoy what we do and you'd like to help support us create more and maybe even take the podcast to weekly, then the best way right now that you can support us is to head over to patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers. You can find all the different stuff we do there, one-page dungeons, uh, bonus audio for things, all kinds of stuff. So head on over there, uh, and even if it's just a dollar or you know however much you're comfortable doing, or if you can't put anything toward the Patreon, just tell a friend about it. Tell somebody about the podcast. That's another great way to support us. So, uh, patreon.com slash goblins growlers, uh, and we'll see y'all soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. I'm Brandon Degas at Wave Brandalore on Twitter and other places. And for today's episode, we have a very special guest in Colin Messier who is the lead rules designer for Nations and Canons, though you will hear me inappropriately identify them as the creator of Nations and Canons when I first introduced them in the episode. And just for context, because we realized after the fact that we didn't do a good job of explaining this in the actual interview, Nations and Canons is a 5th edition uh, Revolutionary War setting. Uh, Totally 100% compatible with 5e, uh, but set in the very low, some might say no, magic world of the real world in the 1700s. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we, you know, it's it's it took us a while to get this interview, and we talk about this a little bit uh, talking to Colin. But uh, it's nice that this happened because for a while we thought it might not. <laughs> we already feel bad enough that they've got a Kickstarter that's actually already over by the time you're hearing this, but. Be sure to hop on their backer kit uh, and do a post, a post Kickstarter pledge, uh, and you could probably get some cool stuff as add-ons in there, such as uh, Benjamin Franklin as a ghost hunter, <laughs> <laughs> which is interesting. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really good. We talked for just over an hour. Um, uh, I would encourage everybody to listen to it. We start talking a little bit about mechanics, and then it gets into a little bit more philosophy and just sort of interesting stuff about the game. It's it's a really good conversation. Um, if uh, if you have even the slightest inkling of like interest in Revolutionary War or or that kind of sort of realism in a game, it's definitely worth a listen. I mean, honestly, even if you were trying to come up with a way to get muskets into your high fantasy setting without making them too overpowered, uh, this is there's a lot of really great rules that are part of this. So listen along and see what you like and pick cherry pick the best parts for your own campaign. Yeah. And before we throw to ourselves, uh, I'll just point out that uh, this is the 15th. So we got five more days left on the spring cleaning sale on the big cartel. And that's uh, most stuff is 10% off. And it's free shipping on uh, everything if you use the code GRAVYBOAT. And uh, some of the shirt designs that are on there, we're probably going to be retiring them. Don't call me a liar if some of them end up sticking around because we haven't quite decided which ones we're retiring yet. Uh, but uh, if you like one of them, now is the time to put a ring on it because uh, you never know. Um, but Josh, unless you have anything else, I think we can throw to ourselves. No, I think it's I think it's over to I think it's over to me live in the studio twenty minutes ago. <laughs> Hello, everyone, 
and welcome to another episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. Joining us today is Colin Messier, the creator of Nations and Canons. Uh, yeah, and this is funny because we've been trying to all of us to talk for like five months now, <laughs> I think, because the, uh, well, here, Colin, go ahead, I'll tell the story. Go ahead and introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Colin Messier, um, they, them, I'm the lead rules developer for Nations and Canons. Um, thank you and welcome. And uh, what I was just going to say is this all started like last year in, in like late June when Josh and I were trying to figure out what we were going to record for like an episode that came out like on the 4th of July. And we said we should really find some sort of patriotic game or something like that. But it turns out in sort of the TTRPG space, by and large, uh, mainly we were looking at jingoistic games. <laughs> uh, if you try to try to do uh, anything related to revolutionary times or America or anything like that. So we spent maybe a week or two trying to find something. And they were like, well, that's a dumb idea. So we recorded an episode about cryptids instead. And <laughs> but that's were, as American as you can get. But I mean. by God, they were American cryptids. We were talking about, we were talking about the Mothman and Chessie and things like that. But, but uh, then we were at MAGFest this year, and Josh is like, hey, you have to come over to the tabletop area. And we just saw you all there with your sign, and we were like, well, damn it, why couldn't we find that six or seven months ago? <laughs> <laughs> the, best, the best part of that story for me is we then spent the rest of the weekend being like, we should stop by and talk to the Nations and Canons people. And then we did. I was going to say, I was like, I don't remember talking to anyone at MAGFest. <laughs> no, we got really busy. It was our first year um, vending there in addition to uh, doing panels and stuff. So we ended up being a lot busier than we thought we might end up being. And then, it, oh, go ahead. It's a great show. I super recommend it for anyone in the D.C. area. Yeah. No, <laughs> Especially if you're a local little independent developer or game designer, they're really their their whole community is great for letting you get in there and Oh yeah. We've Josh, you've gone like for a super long time. I've only been going since like twenty nineteen. I think since twenty fourteen. I've missed a few years in there, mm -hmm. but I think that's when I first went. Uh whatever year Tron was the Oh, theme. okay. <laughs> The second best part of all this for me is, you know, we get back from MAGFest and Josh and I uh, do a little bit of a debrief and we're like, hey, we should uh, we should really talk to uh, we should really reach out to those nations and canons people. And then we both got busy with life for a week or two. And then I checked my I checked our email one day and y'all had reached out to us. <laughs> And I, I messaged Josh. I was like, you didn't email those folks, did you? And he says, no. I was like, huh, well, that's serendipitous. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then as you're aware, you know, we started a very labored back and forth emailing because people were sick or people were busy. And then we finally managed to get our stuff together today. <laughs> so happy you're here. Yeah. Where we have uh, eight days left of our Kickstarter. So it's an exciting <laughs> time for us. Mm -hmm. We're already over 300% funded at time of recording. That's got to feel good. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels pretty great. <laughs> how many how many stretch goals did you I, have? Um, oh gosh, how many have we gone through? Uh, we were doing them at 5k and then we moved up to 10k. Um, I think we're on stretch goal 9. We're working towards stretch goal 9 right now. I might be off by one or two. <laughs> Josh, I interrupted you. Sorry about that. 
I was going to say, looking at our release schedule, this is going to come out the 15th. So it'll be a little bit too late for people to get in on the Kickstarter part of it. Uh, but will they still be able to back the project and get uh, <laughs> a variety of goods, so perhaps? After? We're absolutely going to set up pre-sales on our site. Um, depending on, this is our first Kickstarter. So full disclosure, we have no idea what we're doing. Um, uh, <laughs> not, not like we, we know what we're doing, but it's, um, we're not entirely sure the logistics of the pledge manager and how late pledges work. Um, that's going to be something backer kit tells us that we can either do or we can't do. <laughs> So I don't know that yet. Got it. Yeah, there have been so many times that there have been things. I'm like, oh, man, I wish I'd found this like five days ago. And then I sign up for an email. And then like maybe two, three months later, they send me an email saying I can sign up like to do a late pledge at the backer kit or just do a pre-order. Like they'll, they'll find a way for people to give you money because they still want their cut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you're, you know, if any of your, your folk, uh, your fans are DC based, um, uh, I'm always hanging around game castle and college park, uh, and we'll be doing pre-sales through there directly. Cool. Um, nice. Yeah. It occurred to me after I said the creator of nations and cannons, and you gently corrected me lead rules designer of nations and cannons that maybe I should have looked at the cover and seen that there are in fact four names there. Uh, who are your co-conspirators? Yeah, so Pat uh, Mooney is the um, lead creator. Uh, he's the one that sort of started the project, uh, mainly <laughs> based on having done something else uh, and ended up with a whole bunch of Revolutionary War history, high-quality assets uh, for a video game he made. That was um, going to be one of my questions, where you guys yeah. got all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, and then... <laughs> then was like, what do I do with it now that I have all of this? <laughs> uh, with great uh, artwork comes great responsibility. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I came on to design the the spells and um, uh, adversaries, the monsters, you know, making all the, these human enemies that you might fight feel distinct and different and have interesting tactics. Uh, that quickly extended into becoming more of a partnership. Um and then the other two folks that are on the cover of our book, uh, we have um, Rascal or Lynn Taylor. Uh, she is our lead editor. Rascal, myself, and Pat all went to college together. So that's how we all know each other. Um, actually, and then it might actually be Dvorak's name on the cover. Let me see. Yeah, it's Dvorak, not, not Rascal. All right. So... Same same uh, story, different person. Uh, Kate Dvorak is um, uh, our historian. Uh, she also went to college with us. Uh, she has a history podcast. She's done a lot of really cool stuff. Um, shout out to uh, if anyone's interested in Salem Witch Trials. She's a podcast called Remarkable Providences. Um, and then the one that I think is so important to making this game the success it's been, because uh, our rules... They are rules, you know. I think they're pretty cool. Some people on the internet think they're pretty cool, but they're not very sexy on their own. What drives it all together is our graphic designer, Adri Cohen, who is amazing at taking all of these art, all this art that we have from different time periods and making it look consistent and um, like it all fits together, uh, making sure we don't overly 
cram too many words into one line and you can't read it anymore. All that sort of fun stuff. Yeah, that was actually one of the things I wrote down on my notepad that I just thought the I, I was a graphic artist uh, and a layout person for many, many years. So I tune into that kind of stuff and it's just very well done. It's a very, very polished product. Yeah, it's anyone in the industry, it's their first thing they comment on. Is they're mm-hmm. like, who did your layout? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I know this was uh, sort of Pat's brainchild, it sounds like. But what what can can you speak to sort of the inspiration for all of it, aside from just what am I going to do with all these art assets? <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that's the funny story. The the like more uh, less funny, but more down to earth. So I'm actually a I've been playing D and D since I was four. I'm a second generation. My dad was playing D and D in the very beginning. Um. And then the other thing my family did um, is we're all history nerds. Uh, So my dad used to work at Plymouth Plantation or now Plymouth Patuxet. It's a new name. It's a living history museum uh, that sort of reenacts the pilgrims, you know, 16th century or 17th century, um, 1600s. Uh, And I volunteered there as a child and uh, we did, you know, Civil War reenacting and all this other very focused, uh, specifically New England history, at least from my perspective. And then on Pat's end, uh, Pat has a dogged, like, just wants to Wikipedia, like, go from this to that. And there's so many interesting stories in the Revolutionary War that he already had a passing interest in it. Um, and then after working on uh, the Revolutionary Choices Project for the Cincinnati Historical Society, he just had even more different story threads of like, oh, I really want to tell this story or, or you know, it's really cool that this battle happened and uh, no one talks about it. Like the, the um, a lot of the stuff in the Revolutionary War is truly wild, like the time they build a siege tower in the 1700s <laughs> and it's just <laughs> what, what do you mean they build a siege tower no they build a literal siege tower <laughs> and pushed it like to the fort like get over the ramparts <laughs> yes. kind of siege yes. tower wow <laughs> wow um, and then they then they catapulted choleric bodies over the <laughs> over the walls <laughs> oh gosh so really, it was just like, there's just all these threads of tales that need to be told. And it's just a way of tying it all together. Yeah. And, you know, we're we're all friends. We were playing D&D, get, D&D together all through college. And we've managed to, even 10 years out, like still stay connected by playing those games. Uh, weirdly, the pandemic helped with that because the fact we're spread out mm-hmm. meant, you know, we could all come together online uh, to play our weekly games. So, obviously, the setting for this in uh, more or less, quote-unquote, the real world uh, in, you know, revolutionary times, what are the biggest differences between this, and you can probably speak to this as the rules designer on it, like, what are the biggest differences between this and more of sort of a vanilla 5e experience for some people? Because I don't think we've spelled this out, but this is, you know, a 5e setting so it's fully compatible with fifth edition yeah so this was my this is my baby which is i really wanted it to be 
seamless. So it's it's both completely. It will feel very different than playing regular D anD D, but it will also just slot right into your hack and slash fantasy game. Um, so if you want to do flintlock fantasy, our games bounced around that. The way our weapons are designed, the way the new spells we created, which we've called gambits. Um, mechanically function like spells. So if you're living in a world where there is divine or arcane energy or ghostly projections, um, you can still play that game. You don't have to go to a new game system. Um, But our core rules at their basis have stripped out all of the magical elements. So rather than being faced with a situation like, say, GURPS, where you have everything at the top and then you have mm-hmm. to like kind of strip things out. We've already stripped everything out for you. So if you want to add more fantastical elements in, it's completely up to, to the, the GM and the play group. Or if you want to play this uh, historical setting where you're playing as these larger than life characters who are all, not just based on real people, but all the archetypical characters in our core rules that you see in the role section. Those are all real people that fought in the American Revolution. Um, all of the ones we've chosen have at least at one point <laughs> um, were fighting for the, the Continental Army. Some of them changed sides. Uh, but they're all real people. And we wanted to ground everything in that. So this is our first big difference. You're not a party made up of dwarves and elves and uh, halflings and and what have you. Instead, everyone is human. So mechanically, we wanted to still have that D&D sort of... It's part of D&D, right? Building your character, picking your stats, all of this uh, incorporated into it, special abilities that that would separate you from another... um, another player that's playing a character at the same class. So we've replaced it. We've replaced the race or species system with roles and heritage. The heritage section at the beginning of it uh, just really allows us to showcase all the different languages and people living in North America at the time. Mechanically, your heritage controls your starting language and then whatever you want it to mean to you. We have a whole section um, on the, the so that's our table there showing all the different languages and this is a small subset <laughs> it's important to note uh, fascinating stuff um, and if you go into the next page uh, or uh, right now we're going through the, the book so we're on the, the first page is the origins page that has this table um, with all the languages and the next few pages go over different regions of North America um, and in a relatively brief description describe the peoples that are living there so mm-hmm. yeah, so we've got like Canada, Ohio area, yeah. and you know, like the same with talking about Virginia. It's important to remember when you're talking about Virginia in uh, any any uh, century that you know starts with earlier than a 19. It means a lot of different stuff, like potentially from the Atlantic all the way out to the far western edge of Kentucky. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's a, very generalized. It's a big area that gets yeah. chunked up into smaller stuff as time goes on. Uh, same thing with Ohio. Ohio is huge uh, during this this time mm-hmm. period. It was like it went up to like uh, through like Michigan and stuff like that. Yeah, too, didn't it? I, I can't Just, remember what the river is that it's its westmost border, but it's really far. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so th- that that controls like this is the product of your birth. That way, there's no actual real stats that are tied to the product of your birth. It's um, going to be how you interact with it. It probably will flavor your background, um, which is a 5e concept that we've kept. So mechanically, what separates you is your role. Your role is something like, it's the sort of advanced training you have. And it's for something like you're a scholar, you're a veteran, you're a scout, you're a renegade. Um, these give you your stat bonuses. They give your your abilities. Like um, the scholar has a best laid plans ability, um, and uh, the <laughs> the renegade has. Um, uh, trying to remember which version is the current live version of uh, our rule set because this has changed quite a bit. But the renegade, you know, there are our Trixie. Uh, character they have an ability that can sort of prevent them from from dying um if that's still in the current rules <laughs> uh scoundrels yes. lock okay good yep it's in the one yep. i'm looking at at least yeah, we we modified <laughs> the ability and uh it, you can tell how much i've been in the midst of kickstarter and thinking about our next book <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had when i was going through this i had sort of a lot of trouble making the distinction between the roles and then the, the classes mm, yeah because it, it all felt very similar, but hearing you explain that has sort of cleared it up in my head a little bit. The roles feel to me, now that you said that, more like sort of archetypes from Troika or playbooks from like a Powered by the Apocalypse That's system. exactly right. And that was what a lot of our sort of inspiration with them was. It was a way of like, they're, they're not a subclass, um, but they're se- they, se- they sit separately from your class. Um, we all... Right. Down the line, we want to have like a downtime ability or downtime activity that we talk about that lets you actually change your role too. So, mm-hmm. sort of getting on the fact that this role, this advanced training, is not tied to your birth. Yeah, and I saw I saw something toward the end of the book regarding like downtime activities and stuff like that. It, it it's interesting to hear that you're planning on trying to flesh that out a little bit because I remember it only being like a little couple paragraphs that was about like, it's like, ah, hey, here's some stuff you can do in between missions and things like that. There's a lot of time between battles of the Revolutionary War. And so we really wanted right. to like, not just time skip people, but actually try to set up something where you can have your own little side adventures in that between period. Yeah. I like how you guys also call out how there is uh, also a lot of time in battles in in the Revolutionary War because I remember there was a section where I was like, yeah, the rounds are probably going to take a little bit longer because you know y'all are going to have to stop and reload and that's going to take a few minutes and then they're going to have to stop and reload. You'll have some opportunities to do some different stuff there. I think it's really good to call that out specifically because like really I feel like the moment you have people fooling around with firearms in a in a tabletop role playing game, they're just want to they're want to gonna want to go like John Wick on stuff. So you have to really remind them like, oh hey, no, there's like paper and powder and a big stick you have to put in there. It takes time. So we uh, we do have a sidebar in there that's like if you want a sort of slower feel, you can reflavor rounds as ten seconds. But with mm-hmm. that being said, even at six seconds. With the way we've structured the um, firearm rules, you're still 
that still puts a player character in line with a professionally trained musketeer or, you know, soldier uh, Mm -hmm. during this time period of being able to get off three shots a minute. Um, uh, So that works or actually, no, sorry, it's about five shots a minute, um, which is pretty fast, but you're a player character. You're this larger than life folk hero sort of, it sort of tracks breaks down a little bit Mm -hmm. if you're a 15th level fighter. uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I want to talk about sort of the level 10 retirement and protege system in a little bit. But uh, talking to, since we're already talking about firearms, um, one of the first things I thought of when I was reading through this, just thinking about the type of weapon and the time that we're in, I remembered, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Ken Burns' Civil War and, you know, Shelby Foote in there. It's like, yeah, you know, the reason when you would find Civil War soldiers' bodies, uh, their clothes would be all rifled through. That's because they were all scrambling through their body, like through uh, through themselves to see if they'd been gut shot because they knew if they'd been gut shot, they were dead. Like, it was just a matter of time. Um and obviously, the weaponry is not that much different here in the grand scheme of things. So it seems to me that in this setting, like firearms should be way deadlier than anything you would experience in more of a vanilla 5e game. Yeah, so this is this comes down to the core, like, when we were designing the game, we had a choice to make. We could either make it so... We change AC, we change hit points, we make the game a lot more lethal, sort of do like maybe try one of those cla- uh, AC by level setups or something like that. Or, you know, old school um, Star Wars that had vitality and hit points as separate mm-hmm. systems. And we ultimately decided that, no, we'll just lean into the fact that guns do a lot of damage. Um Again, higher levels, we'll get to that. It sort of breaks down. But your standard brown bass is doing 2d8. um, And that means your standard enemy is doing 2d8. Mm -hmm. Um, And because of the bounded accuracy in 5e, this actually lets us create a a really uh, interesting simulation where a single footman isn't a threat to anyone. Um, They have plus three to hit. uh, They're probably going to miss you. (laughs) even Mm -hmm. if you're just, like, unarmored. Um, But they have an ability called Regimented. This gives them advantage on their attacks when they're uh, shoulder-to-shoulder with someone else who has the Regimented trait. Um, And, and this is important, it prevents them from scoring a critical hit. Uh, Because otherwise, they could become, you know, so 20, it's still going to hit, it's just not going to do double damage. Right. This allows footmen even without support from a sergeant or an officer to be a sort of exponential threat even to a high level party um that solves the whole i'm a i'm a fifth level fighter or i'm a fifth level barbarian i can probably kill all of the guards in this town (laughs) before (laughs) they can hurt me um Mm -hmm. bad enough that i'm willing to retire or the dm has to come up with some reason why there's a really powerful guard at this little town or something like that. This does a couple things, even without prompting players. Uh, They take cover more Mm -hmm. uh, because movement is sort of modulated by the need to reload uh, and you're going to have to spend an action or an attack to reload and your enemy's not very accurate at base. That cover bonus really matters. And so when we go to a convention, when we're playing it for folks that have never played with us before, 
they all pick up the game and they immediately know what to do. Yeah. They're like, we have to get behind the fence while we reload or like, uh, let's, uh, you know, we fired our volley, let's retreat and then reload and then, you know, come back when we're all loaded up. And it's, it's really cool as a designer to see people like do that without any prompting. Yeah. That was one of my notes. I was like, man, I feel like, you really have to pay attention to cover now. You really have to use it. You can't just just charge forward and and you know hope that hope that your attack bonus carries you through on the whole thing. Yeah. Do you also have a? I read it looks like you have a misfire mechanic as well that makes guns potentially more likely not to work on occasion, which also I guess probably helps even things out a little bit better. Yes. So all our guns have misfire score. This is um, definitely inspired by Matt Mercer's Gunslinger class. Um, so that was the sort of start of our firearm system. And then we sort of modified it from there to make it a little more grounded in realism as opposed to that, you know, John Wayne style character. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, so our misfire is a little more punishing, um, but not by much. Uh, and then we actually, something we side product. So we're talking about our core rules and our setting here, but we developed a misfire deck. Uh, so this is a critical fumbles deck. Nice. Uh, it's got different cards for black powder, firearms, grenades, and of course, artillery. Um, and the, the thing that's really fun about that is it comes with a card that has a QR code. And that QR code goes to our Flintlocks and Fulminites uh, PDF, which is all our firearm rules. So if someone wants black powder firearms in a D&D campaign, for whatever reason, uh, they want to do like a pirate adventure or um, my personal favorite of they want to do dryads developing guns to fight back against deforestation. Um, they, they're all set up to do it. That's cool. I, li- I like that as a marketing mechanic. <laughs> Yeah, a marketing mechanic. <laughs> yeah. I was looking at your uh, table of firearms because I, like many gamers before me, like to see what is the maximum amount of damage you'll let me do with one of these things. And I see that you have a 3D10 rifle. And at first I was like, wow, holy crap. And then I started reading heavy, two handed, capacity one, misfire three. And I was like, oh, no. And it's very expensive. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is, the, it is massively expensive compared to other things on the very same list. Yeah, that... Um, so right now we're looking at, at the table of all of our weapons um, in our core rules. And in our Flintlocks and Fulminites PDF, we actually have like early revolvers and some other experimental weapons in there ooh. as well. Um, this one's very like... Okay, this is only what's available in the Revolutionary War. <laughs> that one we went a little more um, wild and fancy free <laughs> on uh, magnificent items, as we called them, okay. instead of magic items. Got it. Um, but we tried to, we have an economy system built into the game. So there's like a recommended amount of uh, pounds you should get for each successful mission. And um, that's baked into all of the adventure modules we publish. And this means that you're making choices when you're buying equipment. So yeah, you can get that really, really nice rifle, but it's going to cost you, um, uh, goodness, I think you have to scroll. 40, oh, no. 41 pounds, 10 shillings. Yeah, 41 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a lot. Yeah. 
it's about and that means you're twice most of these other weapons, if not three or four times. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, you're it. It is Misfire three. So now, one thing we've built into the system: if you actually go back two pages from our weapons table over to our war gear section, um. Uh, you might have to go more than one more page. Yeah, there you go. Our war gear set setting. So we, one big problem in five E, when you introduce firearms, is the stipulation that this weapon is single shot, isn't a drawback. If because um, this is D and D, you know, everyone's a murder hobo. Everyone has infinite gold. They can acquire a second weapon relatively easily, or something, and then all of a sudden, your fighter's carrying like twenty muskets on their back, and they don't care about reloading because they just pick one up and drop it and shoot and fire and <laughs> leave it where it may be. Whatever. Um, that doesn't make sense. The someone carrying multiple long arms um, is. And being able to readily access them in battle sort of breaks down the the realism narrative. Um, and so what we did is develop this war gear system. And this is really what allows our firearm system to thrive. Um, so there's a, a headgear slot, shoulder gear slot, a chest gear slot, waist gear, and foot gear. And you can only wear one item from that section, which means you got some choices to make. So that uh, bullet starter over there is going to reduce the misfire on your, your firearms. So if you're going with that big fancy musket, or not musket, <laughs> rifle, um, you're probably going to want to pick that up. But that means you're not taking um, any of these other items that are also on the chest. So like you aren't going to have a bayonet strap. You aren't going to have a gorget, which is going to or gorget, um, which is going to increase your AC. You're not going to have a pistol brace to have more sidearms. Oh my God. Um, you're, it's like you're making me choose between my Skyrim enchantments all over again. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the thing, I think it was like the old school game where you had to like fit the, the weapon in your, your inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause each weapon is going to take up a little different slot. It, it means you can't just power build, I'm going to take eight rifles. <laughs> and you're going to want to have a sidearm because if your rifle is your only weapon, you've spent all your money on that rifle and you misfire on a one, two or three, it's going to be bad times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like you didn't have to go crazy trying to balance all that out. You just, you made some clear choices that makes sense within the narrative and also like make meta sense. Like as far as the war gear goes, like, yeah, I can, that doesn't feel like a developer being like, ah, oh, shit, <laughs> we, we've painted ourselves into this corner and we have to create <laughs> an entirely new mechanic to solve it. So that's, that's yeah. good. As, as I'm reading through some of the war gear, I was definitely uh, immediately thinking of, and I suspect at least a little bit in the design process, y'all were as well, Assassin's Creed Black Flag. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where the character you're playing just keeps pulling handguns from places, firing them, and then basically throwing them away. Like <laughs> Revolutionary War Neo and Trinity. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of our big inspirations. I mean, we have a lot of them to name a few like a uh, personal favorite um, for, for anyone, any other millennials out there, uh, Liberty's kids. Um, I'm not PBS show. Yeah, it was, it, it was this PBS history story, which 
basically involves these two kids, I think they're siblings, I couldn't tell you, um, that are effectively forced gumping through the Revolutionary War. Um, and that's so much of our adventure module design of like coming up with a through line that gets you like gets the party from one big battle to the next in a way that makes sense, but also seems a little like, Hey, how did you get over there to there? And it's like, we've done all the math that you can get to here from there. <laughs> just why you did it then. And it just serendipitously was also when a big thing would happen. You know, that's. <laughs> That's what makes it a game, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you're telling the story yeah. is because it happened to your characters. Isn't that weird? <laughs> <laughs> um, while we're you know still on the topic of mechanics, I want to go ahead and because we you talked about it just a little bit ago about spells versus gambits and yeah. how that system works. I'm really interested to hear you talk about this just because it makes a lot of sense based on what I read, especially in terms of like the firebrand class. And we haven't really talked a lot about classes yet. Um, uh, just real quick, uh, what I saw in the book was uh, Firebrand, Barbarian, Fighter, Rogue, and Ranger. Yes, all the martial classes. Yeah. yeah. And Firebrand, to me, feels most like a bard because it's also sort of like your sort of uh, caster class that can still do stuff when stuff needs to happen. Um, but the way I understood it is gambits are like for them at least, it's using like your oratorical skill uh, to try and bluff your way through things or convince people of stuff. Essentially, like you've taken a spell like Charm Person and you've diversified it into a number of different emotional states you can try and put people in. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Um, so we removed the more magical classes um, which left a sort of support utility niche that specifically Bard and Paladin filled. So Firebrand is weirdly a mix of Bard and Paladin, um, and with a tinsy bit of Artificer thrown in there mm-hmm. um, to, to end up getting to that class design. Um, we also wanted a class uh, that was standalone that really reinforced this concept of Gambit's um, because we left Ranger. Ranger's a spellcaster in 5e. Uh, normally, they cast spells, and it's a, a sort of regular thing. But almost everyone I know that's ever played a Ranger, all of the time, every time they're casting a spell, they're already casting that spell with this narrative of like they're doing it through their their you know craft and knowledge of the outdoors. And a lot of the Ranger spells are very have practical effects or have ways you can create the mechanical effects and then tell it in a story that didn't involve um, you know, magic divine energy happen- being its cause. So pretty easy to reskin all of those spells that Ranger came with as gambits. Um, and gambits, because I haven't actually said the definition yet, uh, a gambit is uh, a feat of misdirection, guile, ingenuity, um, that someone is creating thanks to their oratory skill or um, their cunning or guile, and they create these discrete effects that function mechanically the same way as spells. So that way, in a game where both of them exist, they're completely interchangeable, and the distinction between them would be a bit moot. But in our system, we don't have Fireball. Instead, we have... Um, 
uh, a gambit, or no, we don't have Stinking Cloud. Instead, we have a gambit called Stinkpot. Stinkpot uh, creates a grenade that you can then later throw in combat, and it creates an effect kind of similar to Stinking Cloud. Um, a little smaller radius, and it doesn't move. <laughs> but like if Patrick Henry is telling people, give me liberty or give me death, that can essentially be sort of like a like a control person or an influence people yeah. sort of spell. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you end up with um, a couple new ones that we added that, that really, that Firebrand has, like Beyond Reproach, um, that is sort of an advanced version of uh, Disguise Self, or you could use it to do a lot of things, but that's that's one of the fun <laughs> uses of it, of just like, I'm uh-huh. I'm too important to be bothered with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or Non Sequitur, where you can effectively um, daze people uh, by uh, using your, your sort of trickery and uh, confusing them. <laughs> in order to sort of sneak past them or uh, otherwise, you know, do something while they're distracted. So yeah, this we're now looking at our firebrand here. Yeah. Um, class. Yeah. So, I mean, really, it sounds like, I think you basically said this, like, it's essentially one-to-one with spells. Yep. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that uh, in the book, uh, you still refer to like casting time and casting your gambit in certain places. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of funny. It was a nightmare to try to figure out what to do with that because well, spell <laughs> casting is one word and it sounds pretty good. Gambit casting doesn't sound great, but we wanted to really like this mechanic is the same. We wanted to make sure we're using the same syntax, the same like understandings so that way. Anyone familiar with D&D can pick this up. Um, mm-hmm. We get the question a lot of the time, why 5e? Like, why didn't we make our own system? Why didn't we put it in another system or anything like that? Uh, and there, there are two main reasons for that. Um, one is the practical reason, and one is the sort of, like, I- inspirational reason. Our practical reason is uh, I'm a huge, as a, player of all uh, D&D games, I'm a huge fan of bounded accuracy and the philosophy that's baked into 5e. Um, while I think there are a lot of problems with other 5e things, bounded accuracy has been what has allowed our game to really like have this fun uh, this sit in the middle where you can still feel like this folk hero um, and still have combat be lethal, but not have combat be depressing. Mm-hmm. And punishing and your character's just gonna die and it's like that that's that can be a a fun game for a lot of different people but i know so many people that would be so upset if like combat was just an inevitability of like at some point you're gonna die (laughs) and you get a lot of people there that won't want to play that game so that's our mechanical reason Mm -hmm. inspirational yeah did uh were you all sweating the were you all sweating the ogl stuff oh yeah that if you had actually talked to me at magfest that would have been what i was um pulling my hair out about we had people asking us about that at our booth because we also like we publish stuff (laughs) under five eight rules we were like are you worried about this i'm like well we'd be pretty stupid if we weren't i was weirdly not worried about it i differ from my partner on, (laughs) on on this um I, I, this is mainly because I knew we were small enough potatoes and I was confident mm-hmm. in the community and that wizards would 
pull back from destroying itself like this. Uh, <laughs> it ended up being really nice for us because it we got we um, Pat got featured in an article um, talking about it and how it, it the wizard's foolish almost decision um, would have been really bad for the community at large. So it, it was a great thing to happen pre Kickstarter. Weirdly, if I'm being you know very silver lining about yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, things work out sometimes. <laughs> but I, I interrupted yeah. you because you were about to talk about your inspirational... My inspirational um, yeah. thing. Uh, so, as a millennial, this is a little hard, and being a second-generation D&D nerd, carrying around my monster manual and getting made fun of for it, this is hard for me to accept, but like, D&D is in schools now. It's like mm-hmm. baked into curriculums. Um, kids are familiar with it. And one of our core reasons of keeping everything historic and not adding any supernatural elements to our base book was so it can always be used as a learning aid. Um, And by being based in 5e, Mm -hmm. we're already something that's familiar. So when we talk, we have this educators program that we started um, that's been going really well where we ship out uh, core rules to educators um, and, uh, we have an educational liaison that's helping us actually produce content specifically for the classroom, um, taking our modules and breaking them into like lesson plans. Uh, so much of our game is from the moment you open that book, you expect, okay, revolutionary war. This is going to be about white guys and powdered wigs fighting over taxes. Not a story that everyone can relate to Mm -hmm. easily. Um, Our game differs from this and you open it up. And the first thing you see is that origins page. You see heritages, you see languages, you just see right off the bat. This isn't us having an agenda. This is us just literally saying the history. These people were here. These languages were spoken. Um, The first publication in Philadelphia is printed in like four or five different languages. I think, um, there's such a mixing pot of different peoples and all of them are involved in the the revolutionary war. That's why then when you flip to the next section, you have our roles and you have different characters like Brazili Lou and Sally St. Clair and Noholima. They're all real people. And so you get to, but they're all real people that almost no one heard about in their history class because they were, a regular person that maybe they did a cool thing. That's why they're this sort of folklore character, um, why they're perfect for being made into an archetypal character. But you don't hear those stories about like the the black veterans that fought in the Revolutionary War. The fact that the Re- the Continental Army at one point was a third black. Well, my mm-hmm. I think stories like that are way more inspiring because it makes you realize that we've basically always just been a bunch of people and then a few of us end up in positions where it's like, I guess you get to hear every little thought that comes out of my head for the next five to 10 years. And then I'll vanish into obscurity again. And like, that's, that's kind of always been the case. There's a few people who get a lot of authority, but everything that's happening is because of everyone that is around that person who are, for the most part, everyday folks just living their lives. Yeah, that is so well said. Um, Ben Franklin is a perfect example of this. You know, Ben Franklin, the proponent of the rags to riches story. Um, His biggest (laughs) critic is his sister. (laughs) 
who uh, constantly calls him out on like, you talk about how you, you know, raised, you know, pulled yourself up by the bootstrap from poverty. <laughs> but I was there and you didn't. <laughs> a bunch of people saw promise in you and gave you a lot of things. Uh, it's a great letter (laughs) you know that leads into um one of the things i wanted to ask you about and it's just like what kind of challenges did you face from sort of like a a sensitivity aspect going into this because i remember josh and i first talking about this in january when we saw you guys at mag we were like i looked at him i was like (laughs) that's gonna be a tough nut to crack i feel like it is and it isn't. It's, again, one of these things that it's important to remember a lot of what your presumptions about the Revolutionary War actually come from the Civil War. So mm-hmm. during the Revolutionary War, uh, it was a pretty common belief that slavery was wrong. Uh, people don't talk about it that way when the Civil War comes around. Uh, there's been a sort of rewriting of history, but it's all there. It's all written people were struggling with it. It's the era of enlightenment. Um, So everyone in Western society is grappling with this decision and like what is going on with this. So, you know, we, of course, hired sensitivity readers and um, we've been making a big effort to hire uh, a variety of different folks for being contributors that can actually speak to directly um, the the sensitivity of different peoples because in the Revolutionary War, um, one of the reasons we said it then as opposed to maybe in another period of time, there's a good argument to be made for any character to decide to fight for the British or the Loyalists or the Continentals or um, fight for specifically for one of the nations uh, of uh, one of the indigenous nations or no one. <laughs> Or, or just their own thing. Like it, it's such a good time of um, gray, which I think is perfect for any D and D campaign. If I'm making like a a world whole cloth, I'm going to have a lot of conflicts that are morally ambiguous, and you can make a good argument for being on their side, um, even if with you know hindsight maybe it wasn't the right side for you to be on. But at the time, you have a very good justified reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, in sort of the initial email back and forth, um, I had mentioned to Pat something along along the lines of just like, oh, you know, I'm really interested in hearing about how you how you all tackled, you know, these kind of sensitivity and racial issues. And I remember Pat being very much like, no, I think, I think we really handled it and we really did a great job on it. It's great to hear, you know, because like, for example, Coyote and Crow really kind of like changed changed the game a lot and really brought this stuff out into the open. Like you have an entire like the entire team putting that together uh, is in you know American Native American yeah. Indigenous, uh, and it's and it's it becomes one of those things you can't ignore. And with the way Wizards has kind of repeatedly fumbled themselves over the last twenty four months. Uh, for like creator with creators of color, just the 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 very obvious and unattended to uh, thirty year long uh, racist campaign against the Roma with Ravenloft, um, it you don't get a pass on that kind of stuff anymore. You you uh, and you shouldn't. Um, but if if nothing else, it's brought something 
in uh, it's made people more aware of the issue so they can take efforts up front to try and resolve it. And that actually leads me to a question uh, that I came up with while I was looking through this. So you've got the barbarian as one of the classes that you can do, but presumably you could choose to be an indigenous person playing as a barbarian. And I wonder if anybody kind of flagged the potential sensitivity issue there since the traditional definition of barbarian is sort of an uncultured, uh, lower less civilized person. There's a reason where I, why our subclass we chose for Barbarian is Grenadier. Because uh, mm-hmm. it, it just, from the get-go, is uh, taking that presumption about, well, what is a Barbarian? And going, well, okay, mm-hmm. here's a pretty well-educated <laughs> soldier of high renown. And, <laughs> you know, the specifically Grenadiers are usually from um, the the British Army, but you know, there is reason why someone could be a, a continental grenadier. Um, obviously, for the class name itself, it has problems. Um, we didn't want to change anything about it because it's so... The class itself is so core to the system. Um, we've even thought about doing something with Monk. Uh, again, the, the names of these two classes are kind of the bigger problems of them. But a thing we've we've mm-hmm. had a, a really interesting idea for monk of actually doing a musketeer, like your classic mm-hmm. um, three musketeer style, uh, with all this this sort of like fancy uh, showy move sets and Flourish. flourishes. Yeah, it really fits the mechanical skeleton that the monk class is based on, uh, and then allows us to not have a class grounded in stereotype, um, but instead mm-hmm. with its subclass broaden out that almost, I'd say, trope of, or party role uh, into something that's more nuanced than just I'm Conan uh, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, that's interesting because, you know, Monk Monk is the one that always gets the attention in this kind of conversation. And I think that's because if you look at Barbarian just in a purely D&D setting, it doesn't set off any alarm bells, at least for most people, because you just, you, it's, you're, we're, we're talking like Hyborian Age Conan type stuff exactly, yeah. here. But you transplant that into the real world where people have been pejoratively called barbarians or referred to them as that. And for me, that was when I was reading it today, that like when when the light bulb went off, I was like, oh, okay, I can see a real uh, situation of incongruence here about that not fitting. The other thing we did in the role section, so one of our roles is Scout. And Scout purposely pulls on um, a lot of indigenous history and a lot of indigenous styles. But we showcase in the actual words folks that aren't indigenous but would fit that archetype. So you have like voyagers and um, another French word that I'm blanking on. <laughs> that uh, uh, so yeah, in in the which section is this? In? Beaver Wars. Uh, um, I'm not going to be able to see it on the screen, unfortunately, just because my brightness is very low. But um, yeah, it's fine. We've called out that. And then we've called out also in our roles like Pioneer, um, uh, indigenous folks mm-hmm. that uh, would fit that role. Like we didn't want to have a role, a class that is, I'm indigenous, 
this is the one I have to play. Right. Um, for our archetypical characters, the two we had we had already picked for the book are both definitely scouts. So they are both here very prominently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's by no means to say that you have to be indigenous to be a scout. And if you're indigenous, you're a scout. So uh, actually, Polly Cooper, who's a, a character that's going to be featured in the American Crisis book um, that's coming out, she's not going to be a scout. Um, and, you know, she's your, your, this Anita woman that uh, is very well known and sort of, Washington thanks her for like sort of saving the army and all this uh, really cool stuff. She's a really interesting uh, woman. And I'm pretty sure right now that uh, she's going to be a pioneer. Um, I don't know if we've actually finalized her character yet though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I wasn't trying to like got you there oh, with no, my yeah. question or anything. I just feel like it's, it's an important discussion to have whenever you even have sort of the slightest spider sense about these kind of things. Because you just you want to make sure that you're just being inclusive to as many people as possible yeah. and everything. And you know, we can all we all every day do things without realizing <laughs> what we're doing. Our sensitivity reader caught something that I thought was really interesting in our um overall our sensitivity reader was really impressed and um our uh indigenous advocacy coordinator we hired on was also like uh they had a great comment because they showed it to their brother and their brother's like, white people made this? <laughs> Which I was like, that's the best fucking compliment I've ever gotten. Yes. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, but the sensitivity reader in our backgrounds, which I, I almost don't talk about them that much because they're, they're backgrounds, they're Dini backgrounds. They're cool because they're flavorful. They're based in all this research that we did. Um, but at the end of the day, mechanically, they're giving you some skills and a cool feature ability. Um, not as sexy as a lot of the other stuff. But in one of them, um, in talking about Vivendiers, uh, we inadvertently used language that made them sound like a camp follower, i.e., a prostitute or something like that, Ooh, which yeah. was absolutely yeah. not what we were doing and not what Vivendiers were at all. But because we had not like done the, we, we hadn't wordsmith that right. And with just a few small tweaks, we fixed it. Um, and I, I think that's just forget about like getting a sensitivity reader to look at your stuff because it's the right thing to do. Um, it's also just really mm-hmm. good for catching stuff like that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, I worked in newspapers and journalism for a long time. Like that's just a copy editor's job. You find the things that get people in trouble and stop them before they get people in trouble. <laughs> that's and, also, it's so much easier to catch those sorts of things when you live in it every day. And that's like your whole focus is I'm going to find this <laughs> stuff and I'm going to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure we hit this before we totally run out of time, um, even though, you know, we can go as long as we want. But uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the the sort of the retirement system and the protege stuff, because I thought that was really interesting as sort of a balance mechanic. <laughs> so you don't have superhumans we running around. We made all our things go out to level 20. So it was there. We weren't going to tell anyone how to play because I'm a big proponent. It's not my job <laughs> to tell you how to play D&D. But yes, after 10th level, as best, even with our rules, <laughs> as we can try, 
you still are becoming a sort of superhuman. I mean, at that point, you're beyond Hercules in terms of like your ability to, to do things or change the world. Now, we don't have ninth level casters, so that solves some of the bigger problems. Um, but you still end up with like a 12th level barbarian um, being shot a hundred times or something like that. Now, it's one catch to that. Um, Barbarian Rage doesn't protect you against artillery damage. Because artillery uh, has its own special damage type. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And the same yeah. is true for volley fire. <laughs> so that way, the barbarian can't just be like, I, I don't really care about this volley fire. I'm just going to run through it. Uh, yeah. Eh, I rage. <laughs> Can't cannonballs they bounce right off me. It's like it's about? like that guy from that old black and white film where they <laughs> shoot the cannon into his stomach and it just bounces right off. <laughs> um if you're angry enough, they can't get through. <laughs> um but so you've made it so folks can essentially retire yes, before they exactly. get too powerful. And still like because our money really matters in the system because you're there isn't a way to just sort of stack infinite money. Um, we, we have a, a sort of core rule baked into um, loot, for instance. So, okay. Uh, if you think about D and D and the fact that your core enemy always is carrying a musket, a player could be like, well, I'm going to keep all these muskets and then sell them all. Uh, so we quickly nip that in the bud with two things that are drawn straight from history. One is that would get you hung or hanged because <laughs> uh, uh, a battlefield um, pillage, not what's the, what's the word scavenging on the, the battlefield. Yeah. Scavenging specifically from the dead was a big no, no. Yeah. Two flintlock muskets uh, were brittle things that, um, be you know firing being into battle and then someone dying on top of might make that weapon pretty worthless to sell you could probably repair it and make it like a functional thing but going back to a merchant and being like here i want to sell this <laughs> they're probably not going to give you anything for it so um we have that called out and then we have in our certain monsters have an ability called trappings um where there's a chance that if you defeat that monster, that monster, they're all people. Well, except the moose. Um, <laughs> moose are monsters. I really wanted moose. to give them an intelligence of one. <laughs> <laughs> it was just symbolic, but it, it's there's no precedent for it. I lost that argument. Funnest, funnest uh, monster design was the moose, though. <laughs> I've gotten away from the the question. Um, so retiring system you know it's it's we're not coming up with anything new you know powered by the apocalypse uh it, there are a lot of other systems that have this same mechanic where you can you can keep your character that you really like in the story and just have them go do other things while you play a character that's sort of more grounded so instead of a campaign um playing and you know you played at 17th level or whatever and what is your challenge you're facing whole armies on your own or something? I don't know. <laughs> Instead, that character stopped leveling. They hit 10th level. They retired. 
when you're now playing as their protege um, while they're going to, you know, on as like an aide to camp to Washington or something like that. That can be interesting from a story perspective too. Like you could, if you plan it out well enough, you could have that protege as almost like sort of a, a squire equivalent or something like that, um, you know, help helping them out. And then eventually they manage to like level up from like level negative five to level one and are able to take, take the place. Um, so I, you know, I, I like it as an answer to power creep, especially in a more realistic setting. Um, I, think, I think that's really the only way to handle that. Yeah. I, <laughs> we didn't want to say there can't be because that that's its own game. Some people really like that game. I've have, I have friends that are playing a 17th level game that they started at level one, and they're having so much fun. <laughs> but mm-hmm. they're all gods now. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it was third and a half edition <laughs> where it was they had a chart and they were like, okay, so ten, like eight to ten is your average person. Your average person is going to be either negative one or plus zero in anything. From 10 to 12, that's your, like, you got a little experience. You're, you've got some specialization. You might be good at a couple of things. 12 to 14, you're starting to become an expert. 14 to 16, you're, like, a full-on veteran master class. You know all the things. At 18, you are the greatest of, of your people. Like, you are as powerful as people ever get. And when you're 20, you're a demigod. It's <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Like, plus five on anything is a ridiculous number. It's a ridiculous number. Yeah, I think in my I, my seventh level 5e character right now, I think that's like a plus six for sneak. That's why I really <laughs> like Bounded Accuracy, is it lets you have DCs that are reasonable. Um, and it still feels like you can hit that. You can still fail it. Um, but it, if it's something you should be able to do, you could do it most of the time. And D20 has got a lot of probability, right? Um, it's maybe not the best mechanical system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the last like game related thing I wanted to ask you about is like the yeah. flintlock fantasy stuff. And I'm just really kind of curious how, like, how far you've run down that rabbit trail sort of mentally and emotionally, because, you know, there's a line in there about, uh, I mean, you talked about Salem witch trials earlier. Like there's a line in there where you can like, yeah, if you want to incorporate like witches and stuff in the game, uh, yeah, you could totally do that. <laughs> Just make sure you talk to your GM first. Um, have, have you all like sort of gamed that out? Like what some of those so, could look like? There's a sidebar in our gambit section and it's called Flintlock Fantasy. And it talks about how it sort of works out. And it goes through a list of like, oh, if you want to shoot a cannon at a dragon, you know, or um, that sort of thing. And then there's a line, or you want to play Benjamin Franklin Banshee Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a 3 a.m. I'm trying to fill the sidebar because I need an answer for this. And I throw together a string of words, stream of consciousness, which I then quickly Google. No one has done anything with it. And I go, okay, it's going in the book. <laughs> that was when we printed the book, the extent of it. From that point on, I kept uncovering more and more weird Benjamin Franklin stuff that just <laughs> historically, you know, like the bones in his basement in Philadelphia, um, the, the, 
instrument he makes, uh, causing people to die of melancholy on stage, um, and sounds like a banshee. Uh, so, you know, that's cl- the glass harmonica, clearly a banshee lore. Uh, he writes this poem about a lighthouse, a haunted lighthouse in Boston as a child. Uh, and then when he's there at the evacuation of Boston, um, when the British are leaving, the British set a time bomb up and blow up this defunct lighthouse that's like really haunted. And I, I talked to my brother who's a big history nerd. Yeah, it, it's a thing that, that they did. Sure, there's a reason. But also, why? <laughs> why did they set a time bomb up to blow up a defunct lighthouse after they left? There's a really interesting, like, supernatural story there and that like ben franklin is like we're going to use the british evacuation as an excuse to get rid of this lighthouse once and for all uh and other ben franklin has become your elminster <laughs> or yes, your volo yeah. i mean he, <laughs> the original Ghostbuster, right? uh, all of his invent it just becomes all of his inventions are actually about ghost hunting uh like his experiments <laughs> with electricity it turns out electricity makes um ghosts vulnerable to uh regular weapon damage um bifocals how else are you going to invent like the ability to see spectral traces or this is all canon now by the way yeah Uh, you're you're one of the designers so that makes it canon this this is this has been canon Um, the franklin stove you need something that can really get rid of last remains um just all these phones aren't coming back again. Kept We're done with fitting. Um, it sounds like you have enough material there for an entire supplement based around Ben Franklin. It is becoming more and more in the works. So our Kickstarter, um, we've been sort of skirting around this idea since last Gen Con more seriously. Um, we ran a Ben Franklin Banshee Slayer um, adventure at Gen Con. We'll do it again this year. So if any listener is going to be at Gen Con, uh, sign up for that game. That one will probably go very fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's become more and more where a lot of other designers are like, you should scrap the history thing and just do that. And I'm like, no, I like this tongue in cheek uh, fantasy game. We are going to do it, uh, but we're going to keep, our core history stuff. And we're going to keep that in this bin. So it's always still here. Cause again, it's part of our mission statement. Your education liaison is going to be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I mean, at the same time, it's really fun, right? And kids love fun. And that's the, the whole idea. Mm-hmm. So one of our stretch goals on this Kickstarter, which I haven't talked a lot about. Um, Cause I could talk all day. Uh, <laughs> uh, was a print and play adventure for Benjamin Franklin Banshee Slayer. And we like we announced that and then like we shot past that stretch goal. <laughs> so clearly had an effect. <laughs> um so this is uh, anyone who backed our Kickstarter, we're gonna give a PDF of um a Benjamin Franklin Banshee Slayer adventure. Now that we sort of proved that there's a market for that, I don't know if it's gonna be our next Kickstarter, but it's now on the docket for one of our Kickstarters is doing something. We've already identified a couple uh, designers that we're going to work with to tell more history-focused supernatural stories. I mean, there's so many good... There's all these weird occult uh, figures in the 18th century because there's a, the rise of occult stuff starts in this time period and then goes into the Civil War. Um, and it's just ripe for like D and D adventures. <laughs> it's perfect. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. 
this is taking a turn that I was not expecting, but that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but uh, Josh, did you have uh, anything? Well, I was just going to say, I appreciate, as I was flipping through some of the gambits, I really appreciate how you continued with the classic D&D schools of magic for each of the gambits, so that the folks who are trying to integrate this into their normal 5e campaign, or vice versa, like trying to do like a time travel story one way or the other, they can. They have that flexibility. You've you've left all of the seeds they need to be able to plant their own grove. It was very interesting reading through it too, and being like, you know, such and such gambit, and then saying like it's like necromancy. <laughs> <It's> like, what? <laughs> yeah, we we struggled to try to populate that school specifically, but turns out there's a lot of really cool medicine stuff uh, that mm-hmm. we've done a, f- a few of them that are in there we have so many more ideas uh somewhere around there circulating online we have our sawbones subclass for rogue uh that ha- gets access to some of the the like battlefield medicine uh gambits we've developed uh, my wife's a surgeon so i've um that's handy yeah i've been slowly converting her into a medical historian <laughs> came back to me the, uh she went to some medical conference and came back she's like okay i seriously want to actually get involved with this now like yes it's working yeah yeah i think the one i saw that made that elicited my reaction it was like a poison or something like that and it, after i saw it and thought about it for just like a half second i was like oh yeah that makes sense okay yeah you you validated my my stern fighting for keeping um schools of magic in there so thank you both this is so valuable to me personally (laughs) you're quite welcome Um, a lot of other games have stripped that out for just that reason and i've been like no we need to leave it in unless DD gets rid of it and then i guess we can get rid of it but until then well yeah it doesn't hurt anything being there as as fellow creators, I recognize the level of effort that goes into, oh, God, I'm having them build a cannon out of a tree. What school of magic is that? Like, <laughs> that's what, the, that, that's like, the James. To do with this? That is the James T. Kirk fighting the Gorn on Cestus 3 school. And 100% right <laughs> is the inspiration for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, well, that's as good a place to end as any. (laughs) Josh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I really appreciate the amount of effort that went into putting schools of magic and levels on all of these abilities, because it's easier to go, oh, well, you get access to this list at this level, and you get access to that list at this level, and here's the effects of those abilities. Okay, bye. But it means that anyone who wants to come along and do something like a time travel story, they have to then fill all of those gaps themselves. And that's it's difficult to fill those gaps, especially when you're not already a game creator. So you taking that extra time to build this out yourself means that other people who want to do really wild and zany stuff don't have to do that work. And I really appreciate that. I, that makes me feel really good. Thank you. Yeah, it's really hard to balance spells, especially when in 5e you can have a third level spell or you can have a second level spell upcast as a third level spell. What's the difference there? How do you like balance out that power level? Which one should be more powerful? Um, it's it's interesting stuff. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, Colin, do you have any sort of final thoughts, pitches? I know we talked a little bit about the, qu- the question marks around the backer kit and uh, supporting after the Kickstarter, but um, anything else you want to throw out there? Please, we'll have a link to our Discord. Uh, our Discord community has exploded during the Kickstarter, so please come on by, check us out. Uh, obviously links to our site too where um, pre-orders will be available um, one final thing uh, just as a, a cool little um, uh, teaser uh, another thing that's part of our Kickstarter is a farmer's almanac creation that similar oh, that's to wonderful. our misfire deck is built agnostic to nations and cannons so it'll have a bunch of cool exploration wilderness and weather rules um, uh, and uh if for anyone that picked up she shanties, you might recognize one of the authors from it, which is one of the winners of the Emmy's games. Emmy's games. What? Please Any tell me that your Benjamin Franklin. Please tell me that your Benjamin Franklin Banshee Hunter is going to have like Poor Richard's Almanac is going to be some sort of like Grail diary that he has that you have to read <laughs> in code like something Da Vinci. Oh my god, that's a great idea. <laughs> I like. I, <laughs> I've been trying to figure out how much of an active role Benjamin Franklin needs to play in each adventure. And you just gave me a great way of like, here's how Benjamin Franklin sends you a message. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, that's great. (laughs) All right. Well, thank really. Thank you for taking time out of your evening to talk to us, especially while you're traveling. Um, It's uh, it's been really cool talking to you. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, Colin Messier, Nations and Cannons give them money uh josh and i both really enjoyed looking at it (laughs) josh you have a final thought there i'm just really excited about uh getting into somebody's time travel campaign because yeah let's go i'm gonna gonna have third level fireballs being cast on uh ships in the harbor and then they're gonna reply with cannon fire it's gonna be great i'm all for time traveling banshee it's been it's one of our our shticks (laughs) (laughs) and on that note everybody i'm gonna throw it back to me and josh in the studio uh thank you again so much colin i I really enjoyed this i don't want to speak for josh but i think he probably did too (laughs) oh absolutely thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about all of this it's even better than we anticipated oh that makes me Mm -hmm. so happy thank you all yeah thank you so much and now back to us That was a wonderful interview with Colin. I'm so glad they came on and talked to us. I'm glad we sat here for that entire hour and 10 minutes and just watched the whole thing again. Uh, (laughs) It was really good to internalize all that stuff. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so in the show notes, check out all the links from everything uh, Colin talked about. And, uh, you know, check it out. It It may be your thing, it may not be your thing, but I think it's interesting enough that it's worth everybody taking a few minutes to go check it out. Um, It's also, as Brandon and I pointed out as part of the interview, it's tough to find a system that is handling things like race and things that are timely for colonial era and et cetera in a sensitive manner. People who are using sensitivity readers for writing that kind of material, it's tough to find that work. So the fact that the folks over at Nations of Canaan are doing that work using sensitivity readers being conscientious as they create is huge. It's massive. We definitely want to be supporting folks like these so that more products like these will be created in the future. Mm -hmm. And now we just have a little bit of housekeeping and then we'll leave you alone for a couple of weeks. (laughs) Um, 
the first thing is, because uh, you may have forgotten it from an hour ago, uh, you know, big sale at the Big Cartel, goblinsandgrowlers.bigcartel.com. You don't have to buy anything. Just letting you know it's there. Not a big deal. Free shipping, 10% off most things. Um, uh, if uh, you want to help the podcast, the best way to support us is to telephone, telegraph, tell a friend about the Goblins and Growlers podcast. That's the best way to grow our listenership and ensure that we can keep doing this. Uh, and also, uh, tell them to leave reviews. Uh, five-star reviews only, please. If it's less than a five-star review, please call me and we will discuss your problem privately as problems should be discussed. Have and, you put your phone number somewhere for people to call you with their problems? No, that's that's the joke. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Brandon, don't do that. It's a terrible yeah. idea. Yeah. My address is. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you can always uh, tweet me your complaints uh, at Way of Brandalore on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, Josh, where do, where do they complain to you? Uh, they can complain to me uh, at Wizards Official. No. <laughs> uh, I'm at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. I'm also at Black Cloak DM on Discord. So if you are on our Discord, bit.ly slash Goblin Discord, you can track me down uh, at Black Cloak DM there as well and give me your thoughts in a public forum where people will gang up on me with you. Oh, and uh, also, hey, sign up for our newsletter. The link to it is at the top of our link tree, linktr.ee slash goblins and growlers. It's a monthly newsletter, so it's not going to be overwhelming your inbox. It's got suggestions for indie games. It's got news from the TTRPG industry. It's got some stuff about where we're going to be, like what's the next con we're going to be at and uh, things like that. So again, it comes out once a month. I don't want to do it more than once a month, so you don't really have anything to fear on that one. Uh, if I do make another newsletter that comes out more than once a month, that'll be a separate one. And you will have every opportunity to opt into that eyes wide open. Well, and if you're like us, as we are in our general day-to-day -day lives, and say Nations and Canons doesn't manage to do a post-Kickstarter backer kit sort of thing, and they have to do pre-sales three months from now, you may have forgotten that Nations and Cannons was a really cool game system that you weren't able to order because you missed the Kickstarter because of how late this episode came out for the <laughs> Kickstarter. Our newsletter will have information like when that pre-sale starts so that we can support creators that we like working with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, we're going to let you go now because you've sat through all of our housekeeping. <laughs> um but hope you enjoyed that interview. Thanks again to Colin for coming and joining us while they were traveling for work. <laughs> uh, That's really inconvenient. So we very much appreciate them. Um, so we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Bye, y'all. like what you hear, consider subscribing and giving us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Especially early in the feed, subscriptions and reviews are super helpful for bringing new listeners our way. Thank you.